decades spending mass focused on alleviating poverty. British public's trust in charities is declining. Funding pressures are increasing. Technologies like blockchain are revolutionising our work. The SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind. Power is shifting to the global south. The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development. How we do development is depleting the natural environment which the poorest communities depend on. As environmental and development organisations, we need to wake up to the triple challenges of tackling climate change, eliminating poverty and protecting the natural environment. At the recent Bonn conference, we brought together experts from different sectors to interrogate how we as NGOs can tackle this urgent crisis together. You'll now hear thoughts from Fahana Yamin from Extinction Rebellion, Tanya Steele from WWF UK and Christine Allen from CAFOD. The panel was moderated by Claire Shakir from IIED. I'm going to ask each panellist to introduce themselves and a little bit about your perspective. Hello, I'm Tanya Steele. I'm the um, CEO of uh, WWF here in the UK. And um, prior to uh, joining WWF, I was at Save the Children for over a decade. Uh, And then I spent my early career in the private sector, Um, working on uh, mass expansion of telecoms and internet use, all the things that we live on today, really. And I guess perhaps just jumping into a few thoughts from me, as a leader of an organisation which core mission is for people and nature to thrive, I would say some 50 years on, we are some distance from even hoping to achieve that. And I guess we all have questions and and things that keep us awake at night. And the question that keeps coming back to me consistently and certainly sits at the heart of the mission of the organisation that I work in day to day is, how will we feed 10 billion people without warming our climate and without destroying what we have left of our natural resources? And we've seen many references in the really very powerful film shared at the start We've taken our natural resources for granted. They've been incredibly plentiful. But we know that the very web of air, water, um, soils is effectively the very backdrop and the basis on which humanity survives. And every piece of science that we lift up and read, it tells us a really quite terrifying story for the future. One of the statistics used at the start of um, today's session related to a report that WWF has run every two years for many, many years. And what we've reported most recently is the abundance of wildlife is really quite close to collapse. Since the 1970s, we've lost 60% of our wildlife. That is equivalent in abundance terms to the human populations of Europe, of South and North America, of India and Oceania. This is a huge collapse. And whether you care about animals or wildlife or not, actually what it is is an incredible proxy for our natural ecosystems. We know that without the combination of healthy predators at the top of any ecosystem, right the way down through to pollinators and to the incredible range of bacteria that lives in our soils and indeed in our oceans, that as humanity... We cannot hope to thrive, let alone survive. So I guess if we start to think about some of the issues of nature, climate and um, food together, 
There's no doubt that our entire food system, whether land or ocean-based, relies on nature and our stewardship of it. But ultimately, whilst we might imagine poaching or levels of over-exploitation are the single biggest destroyer of our lands and wildlife, ultimately it's our food system. The food system and its explosive demands, and indeed the many demands that we will need for the future, are an enormous challenge ahead, both within our oceans, but ultimately across our entire landscapes globally. We're seeing huge rising levels of demand for protein around the world, and why not? Here in the West, we've lived on extraordinary levels of protein for a very long time. But we're undoubtedly going to have to change our food system, as we've seen from the Eat Lancet report and other settings, quite dramatically. And we know we can tackle this potentially in a number of ways, but we have to tackle it through good governance and through good policy as well. And then, if we don't just have the backdrop of a depleted nature system, enormous demands in terms of our own future diets and food systems, then we have the multiplier effect that is climate change. When I stepped into the international world of development some time ago, climate was kind of just nuzzling on the real edges of what we were doing and what we were thinking. But it really is the accelerator. It is the most present and urgent threat that we face today. And how we step forward to tackle it will ultimately affect the outcome of all the systems that we've outlined to date. And I know that sits at the heart of the debate and the discussion today. Okay, Fahana. Well, I'm, I'm Fahani. I mean, I've um, trained as an international lawyer and I've taken part for the last 25 years, mainly in my capacity as an advisor to small island states and worked very closely with the least developing countries and other vulnerable countries. Uh, around 100 countries now work together in various coalitions. All of them were responsible for demanding and putting in place the 1.5 degree uh, limit in the Paris Agreement. And that came actually from a 10-year battle that was uh, started in Copenhagen, the summit that collapsed in 2009, with a decade on. So actually the island countries that I worked for at that time fought for, and the one sentence that they got in the collapsed Copenhagen Accord, as it was called then, was to review the two-degree limit down to 1.5, because they knew then, and the science confirmed then, a decade ago, that that was an existential life-or-death situation that if we went ahead with two degrees, frankly, we're all toast. So I wanted to make that point because, you know, the report of the IPCC looking at pathways came out in 2018, you know, in October, but that report has taken a decade to come to you, and it's not because the people, the scientists and the people who are on front lines in terms of communities and countries have not been speaking. They have. And I applaud the work, you know, that IED and DFID has funded and others have funded. I've received some of that funding to lift their voices and to demand action and to change. It's just that it hasn't made a difference enough and on the right timescales. I want to take a moment. This is a sector-wide conversation. It's not about what we did individually, and it's not about what you did in the last decade and two decades as development and environment practitioners. We've all done amazing things. I'm really proud of the role that I played in the negotiations of the UNFCCC, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, the collapse of this, you know, all of those things, Earth Summit 2 and all the rest of it. I'm very proud of the role that I did. But I know they don't add up 
and I know, and you all know in your hearts, that we have failed as a sector to educate ourselves. There's still too many colleagues who still think this is about you know, birds and bees and panda, polar bears and pandas. <coughs> it's not. We've been saying that, you know, and we did umpteen reports. I've stopped writing them now. That's one of the things I've done in redesigning my life in accordance with climate science. No more reports. We've got enough reports. Why did they not land? Why did this sec those two sectors not make a sufficient enough impact on what was going on? And we don't have to beat ourselves up. There were very large things that happened that were beyond sort of our control. But actually, we did indulge in the fantasy that development, that we were okay. Our development was broadly okay. It was like fixing theirs, you know, over there in those other countries. And that aid was a really important part of that. And that basically, we never used this word. Capitalism was really wrong. But, you know, countries that were recovering and this model of development, which had been extractive and exploitative for 200 years was completely wrong. And we, we are afraid of saying that, but that's actually the truth. Every report comes out and we say business as usual because we don't want to use this word, capitalism, because it makes us politicised and it's not technical enough and so forth. So I think we need to speak some truth to power right now and to ourselves. We are very influential people in the sectors, in the organisations, in the communities uh, that we live in, but I think we need to understand that we're at a point where we have now got to this crisis, and not, it's not a capital, it's not a climate change crisis alone. So the biodiversity uh, extinction has gone on and has been going on for decades, for decades. We're at the end of that point in time. It's not yet being impacted directly by climate, the temperature degree change itself. It has drivers that are much. Uh, uh, more deeply rooted than that. So I think I'm at that point where, to me, it seems much more important to join the activists on the street and to reinvent, frankly, our systems of, of governance here in order to have that large-scale large shift. We have to do this in less than a decade. The students um, are demanding change in a decade. We can do this in a decade, if we apply to it the same kinds of tools that we've applied in a wartime setting or in the moonshot moment, we can do this. We have many, many solutions, but we need to do an awful lot of homework. And one of that, the lessons, I think, you know, for us is to start discussing how do we as sectors, the environment groups, the development groups, all of the other progressive social justice forces out there unite to really demand fundamental change when we know that the political system is not capable of delivering, neither in the UK nor, frankly, in most parts of the world at the moment, without something very different happening. So, yeah. Thank you, Fahana. A call to action. Chrissy. Uh, my name is Christine Allen. I'm uh, the new director of CAFOD. Uh, you saw my boss, the Pope, on the, on the screen before, so you kind of know where we're coming from. And what's interesting is I worked for CAFOD in uh, 1989, and, and when I first joined, and I left and then came back. But my job then was to run CAFOD's uh, campaign called Renewing the Earth, and it was the Environment and Development campaign in the run-up to Rio in 1992. And so on one level, we feel extremely acutely this sense that we failed, because we've been banging on about this for 30 years, given the age away. And the reason why we bang on about it as a development organisation is because fundamentally, environment and development is interconnected, as you've heard already. The sad thing about it is it's, it's, we've clearly not been effective enough in getting that voice out 
and we are, the clock is ticking, we're running out of time. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why uh, environment and development are connected as, that I wanted to add in to what you've heard before, which is that not only are we coming at it from a kind of uh, a theological position, as, as the Pope himself outlined, that, that our planet is our creation, we're all dependent upon it, and protecting the planet, hearing the cry of the poor and hearing the cry of the planet are absolutely the same thing. But in development, we talk about do no harm. And yet time and time again, we're not thinking about the harm that we do to the planet when we're looking at people. So the integration of those two things are key. But we also have to remember that it's about, for me, I like to talk about climate justice. Because for me, it is the people who are the poorest in our world that are suffering the most, who are experiencing the most of the impact of climate, and yet they have done the least to contribute to it. And we must never forget that. And that it's not just that they're on the receiving end, they have less protection, um, and they face much higher risks whenever we see that. Now, we've done lots of great work around disaster risk reduction and building resilience, but, at the same, but we're not going upstream and we're not actually tackling what's the fundamental causes. We've come together in things like the Climate Coalition and a whole raft of work that I'm sure we'll talk about. And as CAFOD, we've also tried to look at the way in which we do our programming work. But I think there's still some, some challenges that we'd probably want to share with you today. The other thing that, that we heard from, from uh, Greta Thunberg and we hear from the, the students all the time, I hear it from my own daughter, is a matter of what Pope Francis calls intergenerational justice. We are... Our generation has screwed the world and we're not bothered about what, we, what kind of inheritance we're leaving it for. So it's not, it, is, it is now, but it is also future generations too. So it's a constant battle, I think, of justice. And we really do need to make sure that we can carve out better political space and bandwidth to take seriously what is the most pressing issue of our time. Well... I'm looking forward to the rest of this, but it was worth hearing the perspectives because I think that did set the scene really nicely. What are the opportunities to build commitments to net zero emissions, given where we are now? What can we do to to ensure that we are moving to net zero as soon as possible? Tanya. I mean, there's undoubtedly huge momentum underway. We know that if we do want to move to a net zero, we won't be driving cars powered by petrol or diesel. We won't be, um, and we're not anymore in the UK, consuming power driven by coal. Um, We won't be heating buildings um, and, and driving our transportation systems in the way we have traditionally done so. I guess the bigger question for me is actually twofold. So whilst there's strong momentum around the energy debate, we still need to create not just significant momentum, but actually significant behavioural change around food, which is effectively 20% of all emissions for the future. And we're already seeing, um, generationally, that well underway. And the spike in veganism isn't just a little one-off spike driven by some extra Greg sausage rolls. It is really a sustained shift But the question is, how do we better support that shift, undoubtedly, uh, for the future as well? I think there's also still a wider question, and this is something we should ask both developmentally in terms of how we invest funds, but also from a UK governmental perspective. Working with colleagues around the world, they have been enormously impressed with the shift in transition away from coal as a nation. What can we do to helpfully support some of those settings uh, with many friends and partners around the world? So that could be one uh, specific step forward. Thank you. 
It's a societal I, issue. Yeah. It de- definitely is. But I'm very encouraged, um, and I made this point yesterday, that in fact many smaller vulnerable countries that we don't think of are exercising leadership. They're not looking at this uh, and saying, right, we give up, we want to all migrate. No, they're transforming their societies, they're going greener, they're committing to 100% renewable energy. The small um, uh, countries that are banded together in this group called the Climate Vulnerable Forum, 48 countries that the Marshall Island now chairs, have committed to that in 2016 as fast as possible. And many of the most progressive countries in terms of climate targets are not anywhere, they're not in the OECD, let me put it that way. They're outside, they're the smaller (laughs) developing countries who are saying we will exercise leadership. So I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge that we see ourselves and the UK least sees itself as in this leadership sort of model the whole time and that's 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 great on some fronts but we are so far behind in terms of thinking that we've really got rid of the the, the massive vested interests that control the direction of our economy and, and have their, their foot very firmly on, on the brake pedal. Um, and there have been more and more countries where that's happened very directly. And I can speak in, in my activist mode. You know, I went through a profound sort of depression when we had the return, essentially, of the fossil fuel lobbies taking over through funded campaigns that involved billions of dollars the elections in many countries, including, you know, uh, the Brexit vote and many others, you know, that is there. It's recorded, documented, it's objective. We had the CEO of Exxon becoming the Secretary of State in the US. We've got a complete rollback of environmental uh, legislation, uh, climate targets. We've got the resurgence of climate denies. All of that isn't accidental. It has been funded and paid for and supported by legal firms, by PR firms, by banks, the whole lot. So we have really got to get a grip on where this problem comes from. And they certainly haven't taken away the subsidies, which would make the task of getting to net zero, which is totally possible, totally possible within a decade, mountains and mountains of evidence saying that it is. It's just, at the moment, it's not politically <coughs> realistic. It's not going to happen on the current political sort of mm. trends and trajectories. But if those kids, 1.5 million of them, marched up and down the country, mm. they went and invaded the banks, the law firms, the fossil fuel companies, mm. the extractives, and said, stop corrupting our politicians, stop funding campaigns of denial, stop you know, putting your... Uh, profits before the planet and I think you know I sound a bit like Greta because I she's really cool but she they're nailing the truth that's the truth of what's happened and why we can't get to net zero much 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 faster there's plenty of studies saying that you could Um, just on very two very quick solutions so so food is an absolutely important uh, critical component I really commend that you look at this two-minute film. It's actually The Earth in 100 Seconds. Uh, sorry, The UK in 100 Seconds by FOE. You can just Google that and you'll see this amazing film. So the UK, without any real big discussion or understanding, you know, almost 40% of our land in the UK is devoted to, to livestock and dairy. But it's massive. So I think once we start acknowledging what we could do in the UK to bring that land, which is frankly a biodiversity desert, back into nature restoration and servicing the food that we actually can eat and survive, that's much part of a much bigger global conversation that you can have. And the other one was fashion, but I'll come back to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Um, lots of interesting things to be said, which I, I agree with a lot. And I'm, I was really struck by, um, just before the Paris COP, Al Gore came and I was at a meeting once and he said, I've got three questions, you know, when these amazing speakers... The questions are, can we, should we, will we? 
Well, can we? Well, we know the technology exists. Can. It's not a question. But of course we can do this. Of course we can, we can actually get to a 1.5 a government, a 1.5 planet. Should we? Well, of course, the moral arguments are made, the economic arguments are increasingly made now. The question is, will we? And what does that come down to? It's not technological. It's not moral. It's not economic. It's actually political. And I agree with, with what my colleagues on the panel have said, that how much of this comes down to how much pressure we can put on our politicians. And, and that's been part of the work that, that uh, CAFOD and, and others have done. Before I joined CAFOD, I worked for Christian Aid. And for the last six years, we've been doing quite a lot of work around shifting resources out of fossil fuels, particularly through the Big Shift campaign. And over quite a lot of time last year, I was engaging... Uh, with, with some of our high street banks and some of the conversations that were happening were really interesting. And, and actually, they are really quite uh, nervous. They're recognising those stranded assets. They're being put under pressure by the Bank of England. So let's push at that open door and let's make sure that we can continue to do that. I think it does come down to fundamentally the nature of our economy still being too uh, wrapped up in a fossil fuel economy and what we can do is really important because we're not paying the price for that it's people around the world who are poorest who are paying that price Want to get more involved in bringing development and environmental work together? Check out the Bond Environment and Development Group on our website <laughs> <laughs>